On uh, Monday, just gone, it was the last day of my Christmas holiday. And I was conscious that on Tuesday morning, as was just mentioned, it was men's prayer starting at seven o'clock. And I wanted to be there. So I said to my wife, Donna, that I was getting an early night to make sure I was up in time. But there was a bit of a problem. And the problem was my Christmas jigsaw was incomplete. (laughs) See, I'd been working on it for a few days. And um, anyway, I said to Donna, Donna went up to bed and I said, I'll be up in a few minutes. Because, you know, I I, want to get up and wherever I get to, it's absolutely fine. And um, I'll finish it another day. Anyway, the, the problem is, any of you jigsaw lovers out there will know, with a jigsaw, there's always just one more piece. And then there's just one more piece, and another, and another. So finally, at 20 to 1 in the morning, <laughs> with a mixed emotions of triumph, satisfaction, regret, and guilt, having conquered the jigsaw, and here it is, I think it's going to come up, I climbed the stairs to bed. And I did make it to men's prayer the next morning. Thankfully, it was online. I was at the online version, and I did have my pyjamas underneath my hoodie, but that was that. Anyway, but what was it in me that meant that I couldn't go to bed before finishing the jigsaw? Well, no doubt it included a worrying combination of that just one more piece, obsession and addiction, But I think there was something else at play. The tendency or the need to put the neat and safe package of Christmas back in its box and then to move on with the separated reality of the new year. But I want to suggest today that God may not want us to put put Christmas back in its box Yes, we may put the decorations, the lights, and even the jigsaw has now gone back in its box. But God does not want us to put the truth of Jesus as king back in its box. Thursday just gone, the 6th of January, is known as the epiphany in the church calendar, the day when Christians all around the world celebrate the revelation of God becoming incarnate, God becoming human in the person of Jesus for all humankind. And in the Western church, we celebrate that by remembering the Magi or the wise men coming coming to uh, visit Jesus with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. In In parts of the Eastern church, they actually celebrate on that day Jesus Um, being baptised in the River Jordan, the manifestation to the world of Jesus as the Son of God. And so today we're just going to spend some minutes reflecting on the visit of the Magi, these wise men to Jesus. And the more I've reflected on this over recent weeks, the less I'm able to contain the visit of the Magi or indeed any of the rest of the Christmas story and put it into a box, into a neat package to be reopened in 11 months' time. Because the Christmas message, including the visit of the Magi, far from being a neat and safe, romantic story to get us through the winter, 
is actually the pivotal point in human history. Declaring Jesus as Lord and as King. And so in some ways, I think it's appropriate that today we reflect on it, having already taken down all our decorations. So let's have a look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go. And search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The visitation of the Magi, as recorded in the Bible, bears little resemblance to our nativity play version. Yes, there's a star. Yes, there's gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But there's no reference to three kings. There's no indications there were three of them, except that there were three gifts. We don't know their names. And the visitation certainly wouldn't have been on Christmas night, you know, as the shepherds left, the kings walked in. In fact, it's like to have been days or even months after Jesus' birth. And the reality is that the the visitation of the Magi, far from being a neat bookend to the nativity play version of Christmas, far from being that, it triggered disruption and uncertainty for Mary, Jesus, and and Joseph, having to flee from Bethlehem as refugees to Egypt. And worse was to follow. Following the order of King Herod, the brutal murder of baby boys under the age of two took place in and around Bethlehem. Herod's attempt to eradicate the rumoured new king. And why was that? Because this was a clash of kingdoms. Because the birth of Jesus was the ushering in of a new kingdom 
This event had been prophesied by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before. In Isaiah 9, starting at verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A new king was promised, and that new king was Jesus. And so in this apparently insignificant place, at an apparently insignificant time, to an apparently insignificant couple, this child was born. To some, this new child was a threat. To Herod, who was an illegitimate king, put in place by an illegitimate Roman authority, a king who lived a life of excess and ruled with fear and cruelty. Later, Jesus was to be a threat to the religious authorities of the day. But to others, there was a sense of wonder and the possibility of hope. To the shepherds, to the magi who wouldn't have been part of the the Jewish people, and later to all those in Israel, who would come to Jesus with humility, particularly the poor and the marginalised. And so to Jesus, the Magi brought gold, frankincense and myrrh. And Bible scholars, they they differ slightly sometimes on, on what each of the gifts meant. But essentially, these gifts were the indication of Jesus as king, of the divinity of Jesus, and even pointing towards the ultimate death that Jesus would endure. And as I've been reflecting on this over the last couple of weeks, there's been a couple of questions that have come to mind for me that I've been asking myself about this this kingship of Jesus. And the first is this. If we're really honest with ourselves, for you and for me, when I move beyond the wonder and the mystery and the fragrances and even the romance of Christmas. Is Jesus my cold light of day, King? In the cold light of day, is Jesus my King? Is he my Lord? Is he the one to whom I bow the knee? Is he the one to whom I pledge allegiance? Is he the one to whom I surrender all? The one whom I would follow whatever the cost? Now, I know the correct answer. I know the exam answer is obviously yes. If I profess to be a follower of Jesus, if I'm part of a church which bases itself on a a belief in Jesus and of his kingdom, then surely the answer must be yes, he must be my king. But I want to invite each of us today to pause at the beginning of this new year and to ask, is Jesus my cold light of day, King? As I enter 2022, what is my heart and life posture towards Jesus, 
Because the reality is, is that I live in a culture and you live in a culture of self-actualization, of self-identification, an age of discovering my own truth, a time where there's example and after example coming out of abuse of power in business, in government, and even in God's church. And a leaning away from a trust in or a submission to any authority. As the author and pastor Mark Sayers puts it, we want the kingdom without the king. We want justice, we want healing, we want peace, we want prosperity, we want hope, we want a sense of worth. But if we're honest, we don't always necessarily want its implications. And so for many of us entering 2010-22, we're in a place of uncertainty, not just in our circumstances, but for some of us, even the place that Jesus takes in our life. You know, we may be uncertain, but Jesus is not. Jesus is not seeking re-election in five years, wondering what promises he needs to make to get himself voted back in as king of kings. Jesus is the king. Whether we choose to opt to follow him or not, he is not seeking re-election from you and me. He's not wondering which message or version of a message he should convey for fear that others might not follow. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he is the second person of the Trinity. I believe that he's divine. I believe that he came to earth born as a baby in Bethlehem, that he lived a perfect life without sin, that he gave his life on the cross for me, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to the Father and that he will return. I believe all of that. But I don't think Jesus' question to me today is, do I believe? Although it is an important question. I think his question to me today is the same that he asked his disciples 2,000 years ago and to every disciple there has been since. Will you follow me? See, Jesus was born in an age of injustice and poverty and oppression and uncertainty. And there in Bethlehem, in all that we've celebrated in recent weeks, through his miraculous um, birth, the hope of the king who'd been prophesied for all nations was ignited. This hope was ignited. And the Bible says that that baby Jesus grew and he grew in wisdom. And at the age of 30, he began his public ministry. And everywhere he went, he taught with authority. He exercised authority over sickness. He proclaimed the kingdom And after three years of ministry, he was put on trial. And the charge against him was that he claimed to be king. The very thing that had led to the murder of those innocents by King Herod 33 years before. And he ended up being brought before Pontius Pilate, who he was the Roman governor of Judea at the time. Pilate a man of power, and he didn't know what to do. Pilate's wife had a dream, and she she said, don't have anything to do with this man Jesus, he's trouble. 
And at one point in the trial process, this is recorded in John chapter 18. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. See, Pilate, the one with position, the one with physical and political power, the one with wealth, was standing before the one who was on trial for his life. And yet, who was the one who was sure of his authority? It was Jesus. Who was the one who was sure of the truth? It was Jesus. Because Jesus knew all that was and is true lay in himself. Jesus, as we've sung this morning, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we enter 2022, we do so with uncertainty. Even this week, we're seeing ongoing turmoil around the world. In Kazakhstan, in Nigeria, in Ethiopia, and the list goes on. Some of us here today and watching online are facing financial uncertainty right now. Some of us are dealing with significant health challenges right now. None of us know what's going to happen with COVID this year, in the coming months. And we're living in a culture where truth seems at best to be transient. And so in the midst of it all, there's an invitation to you and to me to choose the one thing, or more specifically, the one person that is certain and is sure and is trustworthy in this world, Jesus, and to choose him as our king, the way, the truth, and the life. But as we reflect on this invitation, we might want to ask a second question. What kind of king? What kind of king is he? See, we live in a world where authority is about taking and holding on to power. But in Jesus, we serve a king who gave up his power, who came to serve rather than be served, who preferred the weak, preferred the vulnerable, the outsider and the poor, who demonstrated what it is to live a good life, who himself was the very embodiment of love who exercised authority, but he did so with compassion and with mercy, and who loved the world so much that he gave his life for us on a cross. As N.T. Wright put it, his crown would be a crown of thorns and his throne would be a cross. N.T. Wright goes on to say, when the soldiers dressed Jesus up in a purple robe, 
purple being the color of royalty. They do so in order to mock him. But John tells us of it in order to declare that Jesus is indeed the one in purple, the one before whom the nations will bow. Tim Keller puts it this way. Jesus is not just a king. He's a king on a cross. If he were only a king on a throne, you'd submit to him just because you have to. But he's a king who went to the cross for you. Therefore, you can submit to him out of love and of trust. This means to coming to him, not negotiating, but saying, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. Whatever, Whatever you send, I will accept. When someone gave himself utterly for you, how can you not give yourself utterly to him? Taking up your cross means for you to die to self-determination, die to control of your own life, die to using him for your agenda. And I don't say read out these words today to cajole anyone, to manipulate anyone, but I do read them to ask each of us to reflect soberly today and maybe this week to reflect about this coming year and to ask what, or more importantly, who will I give my life to this year? Earlier this week, I was speaking to a friend and uh, she was telling me about her Christmas and she said to me that before Christmas, um, a friend of hers, a young woman, tragically died. And that had been very much part of her Christmas. And she went on and she started sharing about this friend that she had lost, this friend of hers. And she finished by saying these words about her. She loved Jesus more than life itself. She loved Jesus more than life itself. And I don't know in what place you are here today, whether you're here in the room or you're, um, you're watching online. I don't know. I don't know what goals you have, made, have put in place for this year. I don't know what aspirations you may have. I don't know the uncertainties that you're facing. And I, I certainly don't know the fears that are in your heart this morning. But I believe that the invitation, whatever those, that, that culminates in, I believe that the invitation to each one of us today is more about a who than a what. Oh, that I one day, they might say of me, he loved Jesus more than life itself. In a moment, there's going to be an opportunity for us to pray with one another. But before that, I want to read over us a short passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as I do this, you might want to close your eyes. Because this this passage speaks of the invitation to follow Christ. It speaks of the invitation to love Jesus more than life itself. So Philippians 3 starting at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, 
I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Will I choose Jesus as my king this year?